You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, welcome back to The Worship Review. I'm Colin and my co-host is Tyler. This is part two of our end of series one wrap up where we answer listener questions. The first part of this episode, we dealt with broader kind of big picture questions. And today we are now going to look at questions about individual songs as well as wrap up by sharing what we've learned doing this first series of the podcast and previewing second series. Yes, there will be a second series, and we'll talk more about that at the end of this podcast. But let's go ahead and get right back into the questions. Okay, let's get into some specific songs. We uh, critiqued Yes, I Will a little bit for the fact that the lyrics don't simply say, name above all names. Instead, they say, name of all names. We suggested not that this was an error, but we talked about it just being odd or weird or strange. Do you have any thoughts about this, Tyler? Yeah. So we argued that this was a construction that had been established by other uh, names for Christ. And a listener got back to us and asked us if it might be a kind of contraction. So name of all names is actually name apostrophe O-V-E, right. all names. So it is actually name above, in which case we're totally ill-formed in right. critiquing it. I think this is extremely far-fetched. <laughs> but So I, what I mean is it's plausible, but their official lyric video has name of all names, O-F. All of the lyric sites that I can find have, or not that I can find, but that I have looked at have had name of all names. And so... While it's certainly possible, it doesn't seem plausible in this context yeah. to be name above with a with a huge contraction. And actually, typically, uh, when you have vowel initial contractions with a consonant in between them, like A and B, uh, of, the B is going to be retained in any contraction. So if we were going to see above be contracted, it would be above all names and not of all names. Yes. Like bout and about, but yeah. never out for about, right. if that makes sense. Yep. <laughs> I've heard those <laughs> sorts of, that's right. But this about five foot, excuse me. Five foot. Yeah. Very nice. I love that. We gave In Christ Alone glowing reviews. Each of yeah. us gave it a five. Yeah. And yet. Which as we've learned is a rare rating. <laughs> yeah, first we, season, first We series. were not expecting that to be a rare rating. I was yeah. hoping we would have a lot more to yeah. say positive about songs, but and yet there are some issues with this song that went unnoticed, mm-hmm. perhaps because we were glowing for yeah. it. Uh, for example, this line. For every sin on him was laid. We were uncritical of this line, Colin. Upon reconsideration, would you be more critical of this line? Okay, this issue could come from two different places. One, a more theologically specific place and one a broader place. So the 
theologically specific objection would be from Christians who subscribe to the Reformed tradition, the doctrines of grace, Calvinism, that branch of Protestantism, in which Christ only atoned for the sins which he forgives. In other words, the atonement of Christ is limited to the actual sins of believers. Because, and the logic of that is, if Christ died for all sins, but then not all sins are forgiven, is there, that seems to limit the effectiveness of the atonement. So there needs to be a kind of limited atonement. That's So that's one place where that objection could come from. It's also called particular atonement too. Yeah. So, so as to not imply that someone's limiting God, but yes. I think it's a little bit of a circumlocution. Yeah, it, the other, the broader place where that criticism could come from is just the idea that not every person is forgiven. So therefore we can't say every sin on him is laid because that maybe that suggests a kind of universalism. And even Christians that aren't reformed Calvinist, etc., many of them would have objections to universalism. Certainly we would put universalism in the category of heresy, I think. Mm. So that would be a serious objection. To the broad objection, I think we can say for sure that this song is not suggesting that nobody goes to hell. And I think we see this throughout Stuart Townend's catalog. So I, I think that broad objection isn't sustained in the in the song. The more particular objection, at first I received this and I thought, well, I think it's pretty clear in the song because this song uses the first person. And so what's really being said is all my sin on him was laid, but it's just, he just doesn't say it well. But I went back and looked at the lyrics. There isn't a lot of discussion in the song of the individual's sin. So I think this is a case where, yeah, Stuart Townend probably could have been clearer. He probably should have said something other than every sin. Uh, It's probably not enough for me to say that the song shouldn't be recommended. I don't see it as error, but I do see it as unclear. So Uh, maybe a wording like, all my sin. Yes, for all my sin on him was laid. That would have worked much better. Okay, here's, here's the line in context. Yeah. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. So, if we would like to take the I live as limiting the context of every to the every sin of the individual, it works. that's fine. Yeah. But I will concede, unwi- I don't want to say unwillingly, I like this song, so I, I maybe I will say I am. I like this song, and I'm somewhat unwilling to concede the point <laughs> because I like it, and I'm just going to boldly confess that. Um, but yes, it does seem to be the case that it's ambiguous. Certainly in the best. in the stanza, because the stanza doesn't begin with. We don't get the individual to the ver- very end. The stanza is really speaking objectively about what Christ has done, which is one of the strengths of the song. So, with all of these objective statements about what Christ is doing at the cross, it could be taken to mean something broader than the individual. Yes. I, again, I don't think Stuart Townend means that because I know I'm pretty sure he's reformed. I think he is. I don't know that for sure. Okay, I don't know, but, but certainly I will his, say this. his songs are used in reformed churches. In defense of the view that would see every as being limited to the individual, all 
first-person pronouns here are listed in the singular in the entire song. So you yeah. open with, in Christ alone, my hope is found, right? And then every line, yes, he's my every stanza ends with, here light. in the power of Christ, I, I stand. stand. Yeah, and so I on. live. So it clearly seems to be generally hinted toward the individual's yeah. salvation, but it's not worded as clearly as it could be. Yeah. And if we're going to dock songs for being worded as not clearly as they could be, yes. then we should consistently dock this song for yes. not being worded as clearly as it could be. I don't think it means you can't sing the song. No, I don't. Like it, it's, not. This is not, again, on the spectrum, this is all the way at the... It's like a 4.5. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, really is. Uh, okay. Uh, we've criticized lines like, you won't fail me now in Yes, I Will, or you're never gonna let, never gonna let me down in King of My Heart. So we've, we've critiqued that. Is it really fair to criticize those sorts of sentiments? Let me put it this way. Joshua 21.45 says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God is faithful to his promises. We see it throughout scripture. Nothing that he promises us will ever fail. So inasmuch as our hopes and aspirations are in line with his will, we can trust without any shadow of a doubt that they will come to pass. If our hope is for Christ's second coming, our resurrection, the restoration of our bodies, uh, the glorification of our bodies, uh, we have a sure hope. But if by you're never going to let me down, you're thinking of your job promotion or uh, any other number of things that are not promised in Scripture, I don't think we can say that uh, fairly. So I would say we need to be consistent in how we treat those kind of assertions on this podcast. And sometimes the only way to do that is to look at the context in which they emerge in these songs. But I will say that I have been too critical of songs that assert that God will not let us down because I am assuming things about their motives mm. that are not obviously there. I'm assuming that they're thinking of material prosperity, right? but I don't know that. Yeah, Maybe they're hoping for the resurrection to yeah. come, in which case, yes, he's never going to let us down. But I suppose to push back just a smidge, not necessarily to let us off the hook, there is a certain sense in which these songs do need to be clearer about what they mean by those sorts of statements as well. If they leave them undefined, okay, we can say the person that wrote this song has charitable motives. But if it's not spelled out in the song and we put it back, we put it into the worship context, into the church service context, then if we're not clarifying it, we are permitting everybody to just come up with their own interpretation of that. And while, again, we can assume that many will... Think of something like the resurrection to come, you know, or God, yeah, or God's faithfulness. We could assume that most people would have good motives, but we can't really guarantee it. And clearer language would help. We had some very good things to say about how deep the Father's love for us. And we yeah. had some things to criticize. Uh, one line that we omitted or we didn't criticize, but maybe should have was, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Do you have any thoughts on this line, Colin? Yeah. Okay. So to expand a little bit on this, the potential, what are the potential problems here? This song is obviously focused on 
penal substitution. It really is. The whole idea is that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, that Christ is being punished on the cross for our benefit. It is a it is very much in line with penal substitutionary atonement. But as we've already talked about, it takes a stronger view than we think it should. And we see, we see this in the line, the father turned his face away. But we may also see it in this line as well. Because on the one hand, it was my sin that held him there could be speaking of the kind of legal requirement of sin. And that's part of the essence of penal substitutionary atonement, that forgiveness still requires a cost. When we forgive somebody of a financial debt, it's not as if the cost goes away. It's just that we transfer it to ourselves. Like we say, you don't have to pay for that, which means we will. That is the essence of forgiveness. Or, But even if it's not a financial matter, like if I forgive a family member or a friend because they spoke badly about me or betrayed me in some way, I'm not transferring like a financial obligation onto myself, but I'm sort of transferring the the shame, right? It, it doesn't just disappear. I absorb it, right? I, I take it. And so the core of penal substitutionary atonement is that sin does require some sort of punishment. So the idea that it was my sin that held him there could imply, though, something more than just that. It could imply that that Christ was not willingly there, like that Christ wanted to not be there, but was sort of held there involuntarily by... Our sin, and if you think about the rest of the song, the song is about what the Father does by sending Christ to die, and it's about the Father's love. Christ actually doesn't have. I looked back at the lyrics. I could not find much agency for Christ in the song. I couldn't find much indication in the song of Christ actually voluntarily going to the cross, which is what we read in Scripture. Scripture makes it clear that for the joy set before Him. Christ goes to the cross. And we see Christ choosing to go to the cross in several, you know, in the, when he is praying in the in the garden, for example, he, he decides to submit to the will of the Father, right? We see him, even though he's agonizing in the garden, he, he does the will of the Father, like his will and the Father's will are one. So Christ willingly goes to the cross. And that line and the song's context blur the agency of Christ and the fact that Christ voluntarily went to the cross. Hmm. Yeah, because you could you could say it was his love that held him there, yes. right? That he loves us so much that right. he endured this to his own death. Yes, or it was God's glory mm-hmm. that held him there. Mm-hmm. His love for God, mm-hmm. his love for himself. But the song really emphasizes the Father's love and kind of de-emphasizes in some ways Christ's love. Christ is portrayed not just as a sacrificial victim, but almost like a passive sacrificial victim. But that's not mm-hmm. that's not correct. Christ is not passive. Mm-hmm. It's that his will aligns with the Father's will. Christ willingly goes to the cross. Even the one line that we thought initially, I think many people do think, uh, gives us a glimpse into the mind and the will of Christ. 
how great the pain, pain of searing loss, right? Where for a brief moment, we're inside the mind of the Christ, apparently. No, actually, it seems like the song actually is still within the framework of God the Father. And yeah. Christ really is, he's, he seems to be in this song potentially a mere instrument yeah. for God. Yeah, he's an object. Yes. Now, obviously, he's not an object, and I know that Stuart Townend doesn't think that. Yes. Again, v- we're very charitable. We're talking about the song. Yes, we're talking yeah. about the, the, the way the song portrays it, right? In hindsight, we would duck this song for this line. I think so. I don't think it would change my rating of the song. But again, there may be some ways, like we like were we too hard on how deep the Father's love for us? So a listener brought up the idea, uh, an issue of inconsistency, which I, I think could be there. So we criticized how deep the Father's love for us by saying, why should I gain from his reward? And, and I did in particular. And I said, well, we can know the answer to this. It's because of Christ. Like we gain from his reward, not just because he loves us, but because God loves Christ and we receive the righteousness of Christ. And I was mm-hmm. sort of pointing out that this question seems a little bit silly mm-hmm. when we're looking at the cross, like the answer is obvious. But at the same time, I levied no criticism and in fact, in some ways praised a Hillsong song called Who You Say I Am where the very first line is, who am I that the highest king should welcome me? Which is, uh, this is, these are, you know, this is a similar sentiment yes. to what we see in How Deep the Father's Love. We critiqued How Deep the Father's Love, but not who you say I am. And I, you know, we need to, we need to answer for that, whether that was fair or not. I have some thoughts, but I don't yeah. know if you have some thoughts. It seems like the reason why he can't give an answer is because there is no good reason why he should gain from this reward. But there is a good reason, and it's right in front of him. It's that Christ was obedient. But I guess maybe it's but not. It's not a because, of what no, should no, be, right? But, but, okay, but this actually goes back to what we were just saying. If the song, though, doesn't have agency for Christ, that's actually a worthwhile question. Because part of Christ's righteousness that we get is not just Christ's general obedience in life. Christ willingly went to the cross. Like Christ perfectly did the Father's will, even unto the cross. We would not do that, right? But when when we are seen by God, when we are found by God as in Christ, we get that righteousness, even that, that perfect obedience to the Father, even to death. So, but the song doesn't portray the willingness of Christ, it doesn't portray the voluntary choice of Christ. Mm-hmm. It doesn't portray his will. He's very passive in the song. So even if we could find a reason for it, the song doesn't give. The song doesn't give the reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe we're going to divide on this. I'm going to say, why should I gain from his reward is a question of what ought to be the case, mm-hmm. not a question of a mechanism. And I cannot give an answer is a reiteration of an inability to give a an ethical reason okay. for my gaining from his reward. Okay. So let me just say something about who am I that the highest king would welcome me. The difference I see here is that who am I that the highest king should welcome me also comes at the beginning of the song, and it's, and it's a question of identity. So the worshiper has a problem when they're asking, why do I get to be welcomed by the highest king? And then they tell themselves why. Like, in other words, they do answer the question. So it's so I'm okay with that 
question because the song says, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Like, like it points back to God having the right to decide what we are through Christ. Whereas the question in how deep the Father's love for us comes at the end. And I think that's, so the structure is partly what bothers me, I think, that you you got the answer, but then you asked the question. And his answer is, I cannot give an answer. <laughs> it's like, what? So I don't know, like maybe maybe it's just from grading so many undergraduate essays that don't have structures right now that just kind of, that kind of graded, grates me about that order. I don't know. It's like reading an entire essay about Diocletian. And at the end, it's like, who was Diocletian? Maybe we'll never know. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> we just said who he was. <laughs> Tyler, you... <laughs> Tyler, you... Uh, when we did our rating system for... We rated Raise a Hallelujah? Which song was it? It was, it was a Bethel song. It was a Bethel song. We rated a Bethel song. And you gave it something out of five glory clouds. And we had this whole, you had, I had never heard of this before. So on the podcast, you explained to me what a glory cloud was. And we have some questions about uh, where, well, a listener went, went and looked at the glory cloud phenomenon and suggested that, that maybe uh, the video is doctored in some way and that, that he may have figured out how these, this thing was manufactured and, and yeah, do you have some comments on this observation? Yes. So all questions about the legitimacy of glory clouds aside, let's just look at the video that's on YouTube and the, the, the one with millions of views from Bethel, this listener wrote in, and this listener is not just an amateur like me or you, this listener has a degree in filmmaking and makes films. So this listener looked at the film the, the actual video of the glory cloud, and wrote this. In the video I saw, they appeared to be rising, not falling, those unspectacular particles. And I mean, it's lousy video even t for 2011, but I'm pretty sure that that glitter was filmed falling, not rising in real life. The blur trails, or motion trails, were generally above the particles, not below them. It looks like reversed video don't build don't build a big expose on this <laughs> oops <laughs> but those are inserted shots never panning from or to any people which would allow anyone to easily catch a reversing of those clips so because the clips are just of the ceiling uh we don't see people moving backwards yeah. and because the blur trails are above not below the glitter, it appears that it was falling when it was recorded and has been reversed in the video on YouTube if it isn't actually the glory of God. That's a big if, Tyler. Sorry, I shouldn't say. I was just <laughs> kidding. I, that, I don't want to be a heretic. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say blasphemy. Um, it's not the glory of God. It's glitter. It appears that the glitter is falling upwards, and I use those words intentionally yeah. yeah so there you go colin we have uh i have one more question for yeah. you it's a big big question we've now looked at 19 different worship songs throughout this first series what would you say you have learned the most from 
the first series of this podcast. So it's super humbling to host a podcast because obviously you you put your views out there, people listen, uh, and you're you're you know. So I'm an academic. I publish. But I publish to an academic audience, which is a very, very, very critical audience, but nevertheless doesn't have a lot of deep investment in like in these ideas. Like we as academics, we're open to being wrong. And so we we learn from each other. But worship music can bring up all sorts of preconceived experiences, emotions subjective views. And so I've learned a lot about my own predilections that I have never had challenged in some ways, like being forced to research some of these songs, like songs like How How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which will always be a treasure to me. But I imagined that I would be doing this podcast and really exposing songs that I already knew were problematic. And really, in many ways, I've had I've slain and you've slain some of my own sacred cows. And alternatively, I've been quite impressed by some artists, which I would normally have thought were not especially capable of producing decent worship music. So I've certainly learned a lot about what I don't know. And I've learned that I, I am not a, a model of consistency or objectivity uh, and not that I necessarily thought that I was, but I suppose I've just, I've learned even more about my own fallibility. What this has shown me, and just about songs in general, is that contemporary Christian worship music has great power when the emotional content of the song and the truth in the song line up. But like the one ring, this is power that can very easily be misused. And like I said, even with myself, like maybe because I'm moved by one part of a song, I haven't critiqued certain lines in that same song. I've really come to see the enterprise of contemporary Christian music as fraught with great potential for not just error, but error that goes unexamined. And so while it is very powerful and can be very powerful and God-glorifying, it is also capable of advancing tremendous error and potentially even heresy within the church. These songs that we're looking at are songs that are being sung widely in the church. And in some cases, they say erroneous things about God. And we're exhorted in scripture to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. And and Paul couldn't have imagined the enterprise that contemporary Christian music would become. The wolves in sheep clothing in his, his in his era would have been traveling preachers. Yes, self-appointed apostles and self-appointed preachers and those sorts of things. And up until very recently that would have been the problem. But now with the advent of kind of mass media, like I'm not saying the worship artists are the wolves in sheep's clothing. Because the songs are so often tied to emotional responses or emotional memories in people, criticizing the song kind of cuts at those memories and they yeah. feel that you've somehow delegitimized their conversion right. experience or something like that, which we're not trying to do at all. Yeah, We're just trying to examine these critically. 
Uh, and you said it's not necessarily the fault of the songwriters. I would say it's probably not yeah. the fault of the songwriters. In fact, those songwriters probably hand those songs to a producer who goes to town on them. Yeah. And, and if they're even, I mean, if the songwriters are even singing things that they themselves have written, it, yeah. it may be written by a producer and handed to them. I came into this endeavor expecting with a five point system to see some songs be ones, some songs be fives, most songs to be threes or fours, and, and maybe some twos as well. And after having looked at these 19 songs, I am amazed by how poorly so many have performed. And not just not just ones that I was expecting, perhaps, to do poorly for their ambiguity or for, for their uh, mistruths, but um, no, a mistruth is not a word— um, not just for their falsehoods or their ambiguities, but even some songs that I have loved to cut them down has been kind of difficult. And uh, one of the things that I have taken away from this first series is how difficult it really is to write succinctly, truthfully, yeah. uh, emotively, and uh, lovingly of God uh, because – there's error on all sides. Yeah. And it gives me immense respect for songwriters who can pull it off. Yeah. It's easy to be a critic. It's hard to be a good critic. And it's even harder to put yourself out there and do it well. Mm -hmm. Like, even with, I mean, we do a lot of research for each of these episodes, but that pales in comparison to the work that many of these songwriters do. So I would praise those songwriters who are writing songs that are true of God true of man, true of the church, yeah. and also not just a recitation of a catechism, but something beautiful and artistic. Yeah, they really are a gift yes, to the church. Yes, they are. They truly are. It's strange to me that evangelical churches, which do have some firm ideas about orthodoxy, I mean, not all of them are, of course, many of them are not necessarily confessional, you know, but they will have a statement of beliefs that normally contains orthodox, a set of orthodox doctrines that most Christians could get behind. Even in these churches, the songs that they are clearly doing are in some ways at least undermining some of those core values, and in some cases going against them entirely. Evangelical churches are known for their—they're known in the broader culture for their political activism. If a song were to challenge gender norms— I don't think it would last very long on the top charts. If yeah. Bethel Music put out a song about something else that's kind of been co-opted into the culture wars, I think evangelicals would react quite strongly to it. Yeah. And yet these very insidious, at times very insidious ideas about God can seep into the music. And because they're not part of the culture war, they are not examined critically. And, it, and that I think makes them more dangerous because yeah. they can sit quietly in the theology of millions and wreak havoc until someone uproots it. So in light of the kind of disappointment, we are going to spend our second series drawing from a well that we hope is more fruitful. And so what we're going to do for our second series is stick with worship music but we are going to look at hymns that have been made contemporary in some way, either by 
new music, additional words, etc. But we're not looking at the the older versions of the hymns, but we're looking at adaptations of hymns. And in the we, we will largely be asking the same questions. The format will be pretty similar. We're going to ask the same two the same three questions, but we're going to spend a lot more time dissecting particular lyrics. So we're going to give a summary as to what the song's about and what happens in the song, but that's going to be short. And then we're going to really get into particular lines or passages or stanzas uh, that require extended discussion. And then we'll talk a bit more about clarity, coherence, scriptural warrant, but we'll also talk about how the hymn has been adapted. And then we'll give a recommendation. Yeah. And in this case, we're anticipating greater clarity because often these are poetic works from the 18th or 19th centuries. They should have pretty coherent syntax uh, and well-developed ideas about God. And that will allow us to discuss their theology in much greater detail. And we're very excited for that opportunity. Yeah. So that, those episodes will start dropping next week. So catch us on theworshipreview.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, you can find us there. Tell your mama, tell your friends. (laughs) Tell your mama, tell your papa, (laughs) tell your sister, tell your brother, (laughs) tell your grandma. Our average listener age, according to the statistics we're given, is right in the um, late millennial, early Gen X, or early millennial, late Gen X. Yes. Kind of 35-year-olds to 45-year-olds. Yep. So if you grew up playing with one of those really old Game Boys, this is the podcast. For but, you. Did but, you guys have Game Boys? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. But tell but tell your older and younger friends as well. So, you know, I'm sure that they would benefit from this podcast. Seriously, tell your pastors. We have yeah. had some lovely interactions with pastors and deacons and elders. And I'd also like to give a shout out to all of the folks in Africa who are listening to this podcast. I would say there are about 10% of our of our listenership we're we're told comes out of a variety of African nations. So thank you for listening to this podcast continually. Uh I it looks like several jumped on when we reviewed Sinatra's Waymaker but have stuck with us. So thank you for that. Do please share with with your friends as well, please. Yes, and write to us. We're very glad that you're with us. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to this first series of the Worship Review. Catch the next one, and we'll see you then. Cheers. You've been listening to the Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.